Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is a recording from the Amplified Kitchen, which is a series of talks organized by the club about blank with assistance from Music Board Berlin. The topic for this edition was the changing role of branding in dance music. Corporate involvement in dance music is certainly nothing new, but it remains a prominent talking point around the communities in which it operates. This is partly to do with how marketing in the club scene has changed in recent years, with brands taking more active roles in influencing and financing the culture. Artist and educator Matt Dryhurst, Boiler Room curator Michael Stangl, and Yuko Asanuma, a long-term journalist and jack-of-all-trades industry figure, Traded views on the pros, cons, and potential futures of brands in dance music, with RA's Will Lynch moderating the discussion. The talk shows that the questions at hand are much larger than whether a given electronic artist should or should not associate with a brand. We hear how the death of authenticity and the harsh realities of platform capitalism compel us to look at the issue in a structural way. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange on branding and dance music is up next. everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks to Music Board Berlin for making this thing happen. My name is Will Lynch. I'm one of the editors of Resident Advisor. And we're here to talk about one of the most interesting topics facing not just electronic music, but independent music in general, which is the role that brands now play in our community. To start, I guess I'd like to have the three panelists introduce themselves, just your name and what you do, starting with Mikhail. 
my name is Mikael Stangl. I am the uh, curator at large at Boiler Room TV, also one responsible for music programming, one of the hosts and run things in Berlin and East of London, which involves not only music programming, but also project management and also, which I think fits to this conversation, a lot of strategy and implementation execution of um, commercial co co like collaborations and projects, yes. Matt? I'm Matt. Um, I mostly make artwork. I teach a class at NYU on tech and art. Um, yeah, that's about it. Uh, Yuko? I always have a hard time uh, <laughs> describing what I do, but I've been a music journalist for 12 years or so, but I'm doing less journalist work these days. Um, I do artist management and uh, I'm a booking agent. I also promote some events um, and yeah, I had a past of working for an advertising agency at one point too. So, I think the main reason this is even an interesting subject to talk about is because for, I guess you could say, in recent memory, I'm not sure exactly when you would identify the starting point or how many years it's been, but brands have played a new role in independent music where there was a time when a brand partnership sorry, a partnership between a brand and an artist might mean an artist having a track license for an ad or something like that, something quite clear and direct. Now brands have much more innovative ways of getting involved in our community um, and kind of influencing our community. Um, maybe the most clear example would be Red Bull Music Academy. Um, but another would be Boiler Room, I would say. Um, basically, we have cultural institutions in electronic music, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of wouldn't be possible without um, brand partnerships uh, and kind of a modern form of brand partnerships. So I guess to start, Mikhail, do you want to kind of walk us through what Boiler Room does and what role uh, brands play in that? I mean. <clears throat> get back to your point where you said to look at historically when brands got involved. Funny enough, we had a couple of months ago, we had uh, with the Music Commission a similar conversation. Zara Farina was involved, a couple of other people, um, also people who used to work at Rebel Music Academy. It was a researcher named uh, Lorenz Grunewald who presented, you know, his, his PhD, which was actually looking at that, you know, when did brands step, step into culture? And funny enough, um, you can basically trace the history and the rise of jazz music with the sponsorship, a correlation with the sponsorship of soap brands in the US. So a lot of jazz music would have not been, you know, able to, to exist or to find a bigger platform without the patronage of, of, of bigger brands. So this is actually something that's deeply embedded into music culture, even before radio and about the beginning of, of, of recorded music. So that has always been present. I think just the visibility and the way brands engage, which is from, you know, very distinct way of advertising, you know, let's imagine it, it's a difference between, between well, there's different stages, you know, as I think um, uh, an arena named after a brand, you know, a uh, stage with a brand logo, 
or the artist wearing, you know, the attire of the brand, you know, there's like various qualities to that. And to get back to you, how, how we work with Boiler Room, I mean, you have also to look a little bit into the history of, of what we do. So basically when we started it, um, we didn't really know what we were doing. There was no business model, there was no money, there was nothing really except the idea of building a platform for music. But how, we did not really know. We had two webcams, a laptop and an idea. Um, and it was very clear from the very beginning on that what we do at the core of it, which is, you know, providing a platform for electronic and documenting, you know, the growth and, and the culture is completely unsustainable. It's like there's no way we will be able to either pay for it or pay ourselves, which is a fundamental problem, which a lot of electronic music has. The audiences want the music, they want, you know, the diversity of it, you know, they want to lift the culture, but fuck no, they will not pay for it, unfortunately. You know, it's from recording music to, to recorded music to quite a lot of content. This is a, this is a real life issue. So um, it was also from the very beginning for us clear that we need to obtain, you know, some sort of funds. Um, at that time, you know, it was not really a company, so we, would, we, we could not structure it in such a way. And um, it was also, I mean, you must also understand 2010, 2011, it's basically prehistoric times when it comes to culture marketing. The only really, really established culture marketing concept that was, you know, unique, different, scalable, and interesting was Red Bull Music Academy at that time. In 2010, the majority of culture marketing activities of brands would be logo on a stage. You know, then Creators Project came, you know, in around 2012. This is like this famous story where Vice Magazine managed, managed to get some ridiculous $300 million out of IBM and created a quite interesting, you know, platform. But anyhow, for us it was clear, um, we have something that is very dear to us, which is, you know, a music culture that needs visibility, that needs a platform. We have a deep understanding of this, 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 uh, those communities and this culture. Um, so we know, you know, what are the, the, the things that make it work, but also that, that need to be protected, that need to be amplified. But we also knew that there are brands that kind of want to get involved with this demographic, you know, in one way or the other. So for us, it was clear, we cannot do advertising, you know, because this is not the way we want this to be. Sorry, um, when you say do advertising. Advertising would, would be that? classical advertising, visual advertising, like um, banners on your homepage, banners on the uh, stream, banners on my t-shirt, you know, that kind of. It was clear we do not want that. From the very beginning, we wanted to be smart about it because at that time there was also a lot of hostility towards, you know, any kind of corporate money and underground culture, but we had not really a choice. But we knew that if you understand what the culture is about and you can lead... Uh, in, on an equal eye level, the brand to understanding what this culture is about, you can create something that is both interesting for the culture and the brand, which means you can amplify what this artist, this group, this club, whatever is about, give um, the brand access to the demographic, but you don't give the brand much more ownership about that than that. So you amplify it, you create you know, discourse, you create opportunities that would not exist otherwise, but you also create boundaries, which are really, really important, which was always the most important thing for us because, and some people doubt it, but um, authenticity and the credibility of that. I mean, we are some of the most cynical, or we were at that time, some of the most cynical underground music people that there were, you know, but we had to face the reality. What we want to do, we have to do. So we set up a very smart way. We basically rethought how we approach brand, how we talk to them, how we work with them, who are the gatekeepers and facilitators that we let into this conversation, you know, on which level they eat. It's, very, it's getting very complex, by the way, already right now, because I'm now on an agency level. But um, 
you had to look at it and decide what is the process that we want to shape, what are we and what can we offer. And this is basically our strategy ever since, which also allows us to create actually quite exceptional, exceptional things that I'm very, very proud of that would not be possible with any other money than third-party funding that comes, unfortunately, or fortunately, from brands that are willing to provide that. Yeah, and I mean, um, to your point that brands have always kind of been a benefactor of music culture, I think maybe <coughs> what's strikingly different today is that Boiler Room books some pretty avant-garde artists, which in another era might not have seemed to have much commercial potential. Um, but I mean, last night you did the porn sexual. Um, was so sick. <laughs> but I mean, if you're able to do things like that, then it's natural. Yeah, but this is the thing we couldn't be able, we could not do, you know, we could not amplify. Basically, if you look at what happened yesterday, you know, any kind of, you know, body discourse of the last 20 years, you know, and the struggles and the successes were in display yesterday. We could not pay for that if I wouldn't have, you know, done the, the, the Valentine's Boiler Room uh, two weeks ago in Valencia, you know, with King. Because one thing, ultimately, you know, you need to look at what is your end goal, you know, what are you trying to achieve, you know, what is literally the overall picture. And what the fact is um, that, um, of course, if our atten uh, uh, intention would be to rake in as much money as possible, sit on it and be happy, of course, but that's not what we're trying to do. We try to finance 85% of content that is so obscure and so left field that even, you know, like resident advisor would maybe write an article about it, but he would never send five, you know, 10 camera people to the end of the world to create four hours of footage around it that is not even monetizable, you know what I mean? So what is the end goal? And ultimately, what are the tools to get there? So this is, this is, this one thing pays for the other. That's, that's the reality of it. We're very proud of it, to be honest. Uh, Yuko, uh, over the course of your career and the various things that you've done, you've worked um, inside and outside this sphere of brand world. I guess, take being a music journalist, um, doing a freelance gig for a regular magazine or newspaper or website versus a freelance gig for RBMA, what are the key differences there? Well, you definitely get paid more <laughs> if it's a comp corporate sponsored uh, program. And um, I, I actually, I, I didn't mention before, but I, I did work for Red Bull Music Academy for, I would say full time for half a year when they had the academy in Tokyo. I'm from Japan, by the way. It took me a minute to like decide whether I take this job or not, because I, I kind of started my involvement with music scene uh, by um, publishing fanzines <laughs> um, approximately 20 years ago. And I was totally, I was a hip hop head and I was totally against all this mainstream uh, music press and I thought they were all commercial, you know, all promos, boring stuff we should talk about real music and real artists. And I was really, you know, fuck industry, kind of, you know, had that attitude. Since after I, I, I quit advertising job, um, I've been working freelance, uh, independent, and I wasn't sure if I was ready to commit myself to work for, you know, Red Bull. The man. Yeah, and um, it took me a while to think about it, but in, in the end, I, I did the job not because I wanted good pay, 
But I realized with, with the funding, I, I was working as a chief editor of the Japanese language website, the, the online, online magazine. And um, so I was the editor and I was able to, you know, commission so many, you know, uh, great journalists um, I admire uh, to basically I could go to them and say, just write whatever you want to write. We have this money and just pick up any topic and you're, you're free to do what you want. And I never had such opportunity, and it was a great experience. So I have to say I really enjoyed the, the opportunity, and um, yeah, it's, it, it's not possible without, like nobody's, <laughs> no, nobody else I know is paying to do that. And uh, I actually wanted to, um, I, I've been thinking about thinking about this topic, and I I, I wanted to bring up um, I, I want to like bring attention to the the context of um, the current kind of environment because um, the I think the from my perspective the reason we that the the corporate sponsorship became so important is also due to the fact that. Record companies, um, well, because they, they have smaller business now, uh, they're not able to invest in new artists. So, for example, 20 years ago, when I got myself involved in music industry, it was still the kind of traditional uh, record, record industry structure where, uh, you know, big record companies or even like big independent labels such as, I don't know, Warp or Ninja Tune, um, they had the financial resource to invest in artists that they think have the potential and, um, you know, advance uh, the, the budget to make great records and they, they sell records and they can tour them around and they can, you know, make profit out of it. Whereas now, because music don't sell, you can't actually, well, people still do, but you can't really make living, uh, especially if you're an you know, underground independent artist. Uh, it, it became so important, uh, performance income became so important, and uh, to, you, you have to basically keep creating the content um, to to yeah be um, to survive basically yeah yeah so I think this is why that people started to notice um, the involvement because it's not a classic advertising as you mentioned um, that it it the the corporate um, sponsorship became so important and artists became much more dependent on that I think. And you just kind of touched on something that I think is an important piece of context here, which is record labels, including, you know, n not even huge majors, but just successful independent labels used to have the ability to sustain their artists or give them a living wage. <clears throat> now they can't. And it feels like brands kind of stepped in a bit or they filled that void. Matt. 
I've heard you speak very compellingly in the past about basically uh, the structures of like a music community and which things are healthy for them and which things aren't. I guess when you look at this landscape that we're discussing now, um, how do you feel about it? Which things do you like? Which things are you worried about, if any? I think the thing for me, I mean, not to bring into question the nature of this talk, but I was saying to you earlier, my most recent thinking about it is I think that independent music actually won. Um, and I think it won, but there were a bunch of romantics, myself included, who missed the point, right? So if you go back to the 80s or 90s, the message from the independent musical community was you outside of this kind of hulking mainstream marketplace. By the way, mainstream doesn't exist anymore, right? Because we were all marketed to as individuals. Um, so you outside of that can have the agency with a group of supporters to run a career. And the message of independence there was very much one of individuating people, right? And I questioned from time to time whether or not had the tools available to people now been available to the pioneers of electronic punk music, whatever it might be, had they actually formed, was it necess necessary for them to actually form um, collectives, right? Because at the time, I mean, you were shipping around physical objects, you needed a distributor, you needed this, and they, they put together very lean operations. But, the, but at the protocol level, I always try and think of things at like a protocol level. Ultimately, the message was you in your bedroom outside of a centralized support system can make it on your own, which to me is the dominant language of the economy now, right? And so in a sense, we've seen, that's why I've been, people don't like it, but I talk about DJs being kind of like the, the ultimate kind of manifestation of platform capitalism in a sense of like a curator's market, right? It's like if you can bring the most eyes to you through observing you know, the brilliance of your individual taste, um, then you will win. And, and screw attribution or redistribution of payments to the people who put work into making that music or whatever, right? And so what I'm really interested about is when I see brands come in, and I'm actually way more agnostic about this than most people. I think Boiler Room do a great job. I think that RBMA do a great job. The thing for me is I like the idea of there being um, alternative logics competing um, in that space. And I see no inconsistency between kind of the lore of independent music and uh, where we are today. In fact, if anything, it's just become hyper-efficient. Brands have spotted the possibility, which is very pragmatic. Uh, artists have, have pragmatically noticed that, by the way, as you put rightly, this would be a lot less complicated if, if people were willing to pay for culture, which they've, then they've made that decision. That's not something that's been forced upon them, right? Um, so what I'm more interested in is saying, First off, avant-garde, you mentioned Red Bull and so on putting on avant-garde things. Avant-garde is not a fixed term, right? So being avant-garde is not sticking a comb filter on a synthesizer, right? You'd be, I mean, it, 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 it's represented as such, right? But that's, I mean, techno is what, 50 years old? Um, I have a, a 30, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's fairly, Red Bull I mean, Music Academy it's is doing a actually a celebration party in September, 30 years of techno. Okay, but, but it's, it's a little, it's a little, it's, I mean, it's a little peculiar to describe the avant-garde as identifying with a musical movement that's been around for decades and, 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 has, and has weathered multiple economic shifts, right? So this, this idea of the avant-garde as this fixed thing is, is kind of crap. It is, it's bullshit, right? So the, so the question for me is to say, well, you know, it's not necessarily like our brands 
you know, coming in to disrupt avant-garde radical club culture. Or the other, the, the, the alternative question is saying, are we really that radical if a shoe company is interested in us? And what, no, it's true, it's true. Because th those are the margins by which we determine these things, which is saying nothing of the fact that I support a lot of people and you know I, I perform with a band and we we take that money and we and we do it with with no uh, with no real no huge concern because we understand what we're getting into and we understand the, the role of the market. But if you're talking about avant-garde or radicalism, I'm particularly curious at what logics could not be supported by brands, um, not to deform what you guys are doing, not at all, but simply to present a, 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 an actual alternative at the protocol level, at the ideological level, right? And there are certain things that brands cannot support, right? Um, for example, I'm particularly interested in group equity. I'm particularly interested in the idea of decentralizing ownership. You'd have a hard time convincing Red Bull of that. I think they'd actually be more amenable to it than, than some people would, would, would describe. But these are the ideas that I would consider to be actually on the avant-garde. Um, and these are the ideas that I find are, are very rarely supported in these in these in these ecosystems. Because of course, and I'll, I'll just finish with this. So I was just at Sonar, talking on a panel about the future of the internet. I was talking about China almost exclusively because there's a whole other conversation to be had, which you know music tends to lag honestly in these conversations. Um, but the you know, and sitting next to me was Ian Rogers, who used to run Apple Music and is now the head of marketing at, at Louis Vuitton, or you know, a very powerful person in branding. Super gracious guy, I got along with him really well, but, it, but it's super clear. He grew up in skater culture. This guy, there is no logical inconsistency between the ideology he grew up around, that was this radical individualist self-expression, look at me, like that. There is zero inconsistency between that and Instagram or that and a shoe company. And that's just a maturation of, of the market and a reality that particularly under platform capitalism, and I've, I've, this, I'm just quoting my tweets now, the more niche your interests are, the happier it is. So we see a movement away from the mainstream because the mainstream is boring. They have all that data. I am a, you know, I have a, a, a mouse fetish and I like to, I enjoy, you know, hanging out with 15 people in barns somewhere such that my, that's expanding their model, right? So when you move away from kind of market segmentations of mainstream, outsider culture, independent, well, it's, it's all bullshit, it doesn't mean anything anymore. We are now in a time of individualized, personalized targeting, right? Where if you have something that you think is special, and you are advertising it through those platforms, they are stoked, right? Which is to say nothing of the value of you know, identity or any of these kind of issues being kind of, being kind of milked or in, within the commercial realm, that's say nothing of the value of that. But we have to rephrase, reframe our understanding of what radicality is, of what will be supported and what won't be supported. And naturally, there's gonna be people on the margins who are experimenting, and I can talk more about this at some other, some other point, Experimenting in things that could not be supported fundamentally because brands will not want to. But the, the interesting question for me, and a lot of people gripe about brands and music, when I come and say that to people, um, and I say, well, you know, would you want to do this? They don't. So, you know, th then you have to ask yourself, exactly, like, is what I'm doing or what I'm associating with really that radical if the shoe company is interested in it? I feel like a subtext to a lot of what everyone's saying is I f there's an idea of mainstream versus underground that is maybe dated at this point. Um, but kind of before we venture off into more philosophical questions, um, 
in terms of how this stuff actually works, one question I often ponder, especially with regards to Red Bull Music Academy, is what's in it for them? How is it possible that um, spending has to be tens of millions of dollars or, or more over the decades and these incredibly elaborate events, flying people from around the world um, to attend these academies, which, as Yuko pointed out to me earlier, is actually one of their smallest projects in a, in a series of similar projects that are even bigger and more expensive. How does that help their bottom line? And I think maybe a place where some of the suspicion of this comes from is that most people couldn't tell you. There's a feeling that, you know, if you, Red Bull's official line is, well, we just love independent music. And any rational person will be thinking, you're not telling me the real reason. Um, and I think there's that introduces an element of doubt, which that sort of ill-defined punk DIY ethic flares up, being like, you're full of shit, I'm not down with this. Um, so I guess my sort of my honest question to you guys is, how do brands actually benefit from projects like these? How does it help them sell their product? We need to talk a lot about the things that you just said. Um, and we're going to get back on China in particular, but it's very easy. You know, there's a thing called market and partnership activations. You know, a brand does not only have a relationship to, this, to its customers, it also has um, a partnership to its clients, which means, you know, the venues, the markets, the, um, if you look at how brands activate certain markets, it's usually always driven by some sort of strategic interest that might be, you know, I mean, drinks business is, drinks business is that if you sell a certain amount, you know, of drinks by a particular brand, you amass a bonus, you know, some brands pay it out, you know, every club gets that, you know, from the, most clubs in Berlin even get started with a prepayment from a big brewery because they get like 300,000 euros in advance or 200,000 euros in advance because then will, there will be for five years exclusively selling Astra or or whatever, whatever, whatever is being being on tap, um, and this can also be you know fragmentized and be used for individual activations like hosting an event that is part of a campaign that this brand is uh, running that creates additional revenue for that club that is not as monetary like giving you three thousand euros. You know, it gives you a lineup, it gives you the ticket revenue. It gives you, you know, a good relationship with that particular venue, which will only stock then this particular drink for the next five years to come. And the audience comes and it's like, oh, this is a sick place. This is a sick lineup. Oh, this drink is actually quite tasty. So it's a combination of ideological, but also hard monetary um, and relationship uh, goals and values. I mean, I'll be honest. I, um, I kind of personally lost you in there um, with, you know, uh, I trust that what you're saying is totally sound, but just as a, you know, as a person not that well versed in how this all works, I still don't completely get it. Uh, in terms of th you know something like um, uh, fragmentation, market activations, things like that, I guess I think me personally, and I think many people feel the same way as me. I still feel there's a kind of fog of, you know, the, the actual transaction, the the specific dynamics of where the money's going and where it's coming and how these artists are instrumental to it I it's can't completely actually arbitrary it. it's completely arbitrary to be honest like if at that time um, 
I think, you know, not so for example the founders of Ripple Music Academy, Torsten Money Mani, two of the most uh uh unique individuals you will find in the sphere of music and, and, and brands. They're, they're like they're geniuses. And they're committed to underground music culture. Um, you know, if their thing would have been in 1998, not techno, but contemporary classical music, and they would have had the right sales pitch, then half of us would now listen to, you know, to completely different music. It's a lot of this stuff is really, really arbitrary. And what one mistake that's a lot of um, when you look at it is being made is you detach it a little bit from the people behind it. You know, because ultimately, you know, any kind of conversation is in the greater scheme of things, complete random exchange. You know, we talk about the thing because we happen to be in a situation when this thing is appropriate. But if you shift, you know, one parameter to the left or the right, we would be talking about a completely different thing. So the outcome would be a different one. So a lot of it is really, really arbitrary because somebody in a position of power, decision making, has the right sales pitch to steer the conversation into that direction. That happens to be, you know, resonating with what's at the moment hip and culture, amplifying it and taking it the same direction. But I feel quite often that kind of interest is really, really, really arbitrary. Why, why some brands get involved with techno and some brands get involved with the Bayreuther Festspiele, even though you could switch it, you know? There's no reason why why uh, Audi is supporting the Bayreuther Festspiele and Red Bull Music Academy techno and not the other way around. Sure. Um, you go. You worked for RBMA. Mm -hmm. How does that project result in cans of Red Bull being sold, or does it? Um, I I can't really say much about Red Bull, <coughs> but I can I can I think I can give you like a simpler answer to your question from my experience of working for an advertising agency, because at the time I mean by the way I only worked for two and a half years and uh, I worked for a very big. A cigarette brand. I was assigned to a very big cigarette brand at the time, uh, not by my choice, but you know, um, um, I was doing that. And um, what really kind of fascinated me was that um, a packet of cigarette uh, costs something like twenty cents to make. And I don't know. Of course, they, they, there are a lot of taxes and everything added on top, but. They, they sell it for much higher price and the, the profit these uh, companies make is just enormous. And I think you can say the same with uh, Red Bull because there's not that much in, in the can. <laughs> it doesn't cost a lot of money to make uh, a can of Red Bull. And if you think of it, um, a lot of these really big brands that are already very successful tend to spend a lot of money into promotion, um, basically because they make too much profit. <coughs> and they have to, well, they don't have to, but unless they spend it on expenses, this profit will be just taken away as tax. So typically they, they seek for something they can spend their money on towards the end of fiscal year. And they, they you know, hire a creative agency or advertising agency to come up with something that they can spend, I don't know, $3 million. And it could be anything, as long as it maintains the image of the brand, that's fine. And a lot of the times these marketing brand, brand managers 
are quite clueless about culture or music, so they often hire a third uh, company that you know, specialize in that, whether it's creative agency or production company, uh, event promotion company. And this is like the basic kind of financial reason they do, as far as I, I understand. Mm. There's also, you know, like to go maybe back to the practicalities of it, um, one of the main reasons why we, for example, decided, you know, as you said, a lot of brand managers, uh, bless them, but they are very clueless. I mean, you don't, you can't know everything about everything. So you need to, you know, give it to someone. Unfortunately, the process is traditionally structured that the clueless brand manager gives that budget to a very clueless advertising agency that then gives it to a even more clueless sub-agency and they then find, you know, the person on the ground and then when it trickles up back to the brand, a distorted monster of the original idea arrives and this is why we get a lot of really awful event concepts. Um, so for Boyden for us it was important to exclude as many of those gatekeepers because in the end we felt very protective about, you know, the original idea. We didn't want, you know, that our idea of 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 a really dope, you know, get together of artists becomes just a branded shit show, you know, where we're basically ev between every transition a jingle has to be played, which is, you know, like the extent of what some brands you think they own of culture when they give their money is sometimes frightening. So um, the job of a lot of the, like, the kind of players that understand the process is basically this expectation management management was the boundary like kind of setting boundaries to protect the like to to give of course they paid for it you know they they should you know get what they got promised but also to protect those who don't know how to protect themselves which is quite often artists which is audiences which is you know uh, just to help them to protect not to get sucked into something they might not understand because it's a very complex process you know one of the kind of more ideological things we brushed up against earlier is, um, I guess, what you could call the notion of authenticity. What is it that we feel is being compromised when an independent artist works the brand? And to me, when I really drill down to that idea, um, I guess it's is an artist is the artist kind of original message being compromised in some way? That certainly has happened kind of in the old school, in the days of MTV and major labels and things like that. Um, do we think that this world of brand partnerships is friendlier to authenticity or is more tolerant of um, the artist's unvarnished ideas than that old world? Yeah, could, but for the reasons I tried to articulate, it, the it's no longer about one hulking message that's going to convince everybody. It's about establishing territory or establishing new territories and getting the jump on other people. I mean, there's something arbitrary about this too, but there's also probably a very competitive environment where people are saying, we better fund this because we don't want them to fund it, right? And so there's a degree of flexibility there and people get away with some interesting things in that, in that context. But, but I don't think that large companies in the context of our niche culture um, are particularly, like, they're looking for that. They're looking for something else. They're looking to get in early, and that most likely is you know, justifies the investment. Um, 
Yeah, but in terms of authenticity, I mean, as I say, authentic to what? And that, that, that's the question that I'm, I'm curious about with this, is I, I do believe that there are many um, ideologies one could espouse that would come into conflict with taking money from a drinks company. Um, but I don't see that many of them, actually. Um, and, and so th that's why I find the framing of this question to be somewhat confusing or sticky, um, because I don't see there to be too many inconsistencies there. Past a certain point, obviously. Like the, there's, a, there's obviously a line that's been established, and things now are more flexible in that way. But, but they're flexible for a reason. It's not, it's not that people just chilled out. Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's benefit to that. I think maybe the change that took place. Sorry. I mean, there's, there's a certain, you know, a certain authenticity. For example, let's say it's an event-based collaboration. You know, you can do events in various ways. You can, on one hand, you know, try to create, like, re not reproduce, but basically maintain the structure, the kind of social interaction, you know, the kind of experience of, let's say, a club night. Or you could do a red carpet, a photo wall, you know, VIP booth, you know, uh, table service, like, um, tables next to the D, you know, like, it's days. For sure. But, but the thing is, uh, the, the, where, where I think things changed, and I think they changed inexorably, is that my understanding of authenticity at one point, and this is like pre-globalization, this is pre-kind of the flattening of the earth where everybody plays the same music in different cities and we try our best to go further and further out and set up the servers so that we can, you know, uh, uh, convince kids in Egypt to make trip hop too. Or, you know, this kind, of, this kind of flattening of the earth. Before that, authenticity meant I'm going into Mississippi and there's people who have agency and equity in this area, and we are aliens to this, right? That over time, and this is a conversation way bigger than music, that over time has eroded across the board, right? So authenticity now is, okay, these kids have a Facebook group, and every now and then they get invited to play in a club that is owned by someone who's 50 years old who bought it with their parents' money or something like that, you know? Like, like authenticity in that context is a very low bar to jump, whereas authenticity in the classic context was like, no, you're coming on our turf. And what I think is interesting, I mean, this is a bigger conversation about, about territory generally, but what's interesting about this is who has turf anymore to claim, right? Like, um, and on the protocol level, this is what I think is super interesting. Like a Burkine, for example. Burkine never comes up in these conversations. Why? Because they have a core protocol. They stick to it. They're, they're against the, 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 the kind of the dominant uh, ideology of the web, which is that of the, the image, right? They don't let you take pictures in there and it works super well. That is an example of something that would have be very, very resilient to. And people try their best. You see advertising campaigns that like allude to it or they get the, the bouncer to participate or whatever because they want a piece of it but they can't quite get access to it. It's possible, you know. Um, but, but there's very, very few examples where, where there, there would be something that, that would be classically authentic, not to overvalue that term, um, to, to corrupt or, or, you know, and a lot of that has more to do with just the way in which cities have gone. I mean, it, it, you know, people don't have territory to claim anymore. So, you know, it, it's kind of shooting fish in a barrel and people are looking for uh, opportunities for visibility or for, you know, to make a career for themselves. Um, well, then if we abandon the concept of authenticity, let's say protecting the interests, I guess, you know, maybe authenticity is not the right, you know, it's a very philosophical and very, very thinly spread term nowadays, but in the end, it's about understanding what are the interests of the people involved, of the stakeholders, and how can you, you know, protect the interests of those who have less power in that and leverage in that conversation um, over the interests of those who who have that leverage, you know, that have 100%. the money, that have yep. the platform, that could technically, luckily we're gone, you know, those days are gone where, you know, like a 
drink or cigarette brand, you know, can put, you know, the Holly Herndon ensemble into like glitter suits and hunt you down, you know, like some some uh, TV show stage playing playing, you know samba versions of your your tunes yeah for sure but, but that would also be bad business practice for exactly the reason well that used to be in the 70s 80s that yeah, was no, like absolutely, that was absolutely. the way that it was but that but that's the way that's the tricky way in which these things work and this is for better or worse but the tricky way these things work as i said is that the stranger you are the more benefit um and i don't think that we've metabolized that i don't think that we've these conversations haven't quite metabolized the idea that things that and proud traditions that, that i identify with and have identified with for a long time they aren't uh, resistant in this way. Um, there was something there that, that allowed for them to be co-opted in this sense, and, and, and many people might, might, might well be happy with that so long as they lose the critical reflex of immediately thinking that, that this is a bad thing. You know? um, and I, I just keep coming back to it, it's like, what, what, what are the lines of things that can't be supported? Um, and how do we focus time on supporting those? Um, because you learn a lot from that, irrespective of, you know. You mentioned earlier that something about um, I forget exactly how you put it, ideological inconsistency or logical inc inconsistency of a skater ending up running the branding department at Louis Vuitton or I mean, Look at Vice. I mean, Vi what is Vice but, you know, skater, hardcore culture uh, manifest through through new tools. You know? Sure. It yeah, and I guess to me I feel that it's rooted in a time where um, having a big platform or being on a major label or being on TV or something like that necessarily meant watering down anything but the most vanilla offering, you know, the advent of the clean version of a single, things like that. Maybe that's over and that logical inconsistency is no longer there. Or you can be a former skater branding for Louis Vuitton and not without being a hypocrite, basically. Um, I guess my question at this point in the conversation is what's the catch or you know what's what's the th thing that we need to be wary of if anything or is you know i mean one thing i've thought about is um i guess for me when i mentioned before um it's not a clear threat or anything or a risk but it makes me uneasy that you know if i see um a celebrity on an ad hawking a product I pretty much understand how this works. I still don't get how RVMA works or, or what is really going on back there. And, um, and I feel that that kind of disconnect in information, even if there's nothing wrong in the end, makes me uneasy. And um, I've thought before about, interestingly enough, I'd heard this quote, I researched it uh, yesterday. It turns out it, it was actually just a comment someone left on Metafilter that built up steam and has been quoted many times, which is, um, if you're getting something for free, you're the product. Um, and so when I think about the crowds on Boiler Room, um, that they're the actual product that you know, you're know you serving up to the brand. And the cameras and the DJs are the tools the same way a farmer uses tractors and whatnot to harvest his crops or whatever. And maybe there's nothing wrong with that. but I guess part of me has a feeling like there's something about it or there's a lack of awareness on the part of the, you know, the role, the, the person, the people in the crowd aren't completely clear on what their role in this transaction is. And I wonder if maybe that's fine, 
but I'm not sure. Usually they are aware because you have to have a disclaimer at the entrance of the venue that kind of states, you know, the use, what the intent is and what the usage of the content is intended for. But, you know, before we get too positivistic and start to hang up uh, banners, uh, Budweiser banners all over about blank. Um, there is actually <laughs> there is actually quite quite a big danger. You mentioned China, you know, and I've been I've been spent quite a lot of time in, in in China in the last couple of years because we've done we've done a few shows there that were actually pretty pretty awesome. And what I saw there was that the brands have tried out all the strategies in Europe and America. They learned, you know, how to market music in news new ways and China which is a emerging music market you know like traditional music uh, industry did not exist there for unless until like 20-15 years ago really still doesn't really exist what happens now is that audiences are being built up by brands which means before underground music culture and this is what we ultimately talk about you know so all those wonderful places for all the wonderful weirdos that we call friends um, before the infrastructures can grow naturally and organically the brands come in and dictate the terms so the audiences are used to the fact that the Budweiser logo is bigger than the actual stage itself and that creates realities you know that absolutely recreates realities this is you see in especially you know Beijing Shanghai um, that the way the audiences relate to club spaces but also to the brands you know within the club spaces quite you know completely differently just because they got educated by the brands to accept their presence before the music culture itself could do this education you know what I mean so um, and this is a day. This is a day. I mean, I, I'm not. I don't know. I mean, it's similar on a lot of like the growing um, African music markets. You know, as for example, MTN, which is a very big mobile phone brand that basically uh, takes in a lot of that. You know, because they have the network. You know, they have the platform. They have the money, and they kind of determine what is music culture across you know east and central africa really because there's no infrastructure for that and that is the danger really because there's nobody who protects the interests of of of, of music culture because music culture doesn't have the leverage yet it doesn't have the spokespeople it doesn't have you know the boundaries the gatekeepers nothing there's only brand money really because nobody else um cares and that that is that is that is not cool <laughs> what's the thing i mean one argument I can get down with about the value of music, particularly live music, is this idea that you know it's a it's a relatively cheap and efficient way to to prototype congregation. Um, it has a history of um, being a you know a meeting place for different. It's a place to find the others. That was always why I, I became interested in weird music. Was it was you know. A way, I mean, it's like a, a dating service or something where you can kind of like, okay, just cut the crap. I know that there's going to be some people I can talk to about some things. There's a complacency that sets in. I get frustrated often. Like, oh, you'll go on Twitter. And I'm like, there's a correlation between the number of kind of, you know, mixes, just infinite mixes, just everyone mixes. I always mix it. I don't know when people get the time, but I'm like, oh, no, I do know where people get the time. It's because they're not working. Right? There's this kind of like the leisure industry, this kind of like this, this, this hulking leisure industry of people constantly, you know, you, offices of people, you don't know what they're doing necessarily, but they're listening to some techno or some whatever it might be, um, is in some way displacing a sense of real agency in the world, right? Like 
Um, and you can kind of be lulled. And they, there's big articles about this with the video game industry, like how you know the video game industry saved the US administration from all this pain because the number of people under 30 who just spend all their time playing video games and not complaining um, is ridiculously high. It's like jaw-droppingly high. Um, so th this role of culture is being somehow just a solve to to kind of smooth things over and it's like, well, what more do you want? And the, 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 on the, again, this comes back to the protocol level. What more do you want? If, if you want to, um, if your idea of expressing yourself or, or of manifesting something in the world is to go into a room and dance with a bunch of people, then that protocol does not discriminate such that the people with the most money and the most interests are going to win that game, period. Well, because after all, we're talking about counterculture, you know. I mean, yeah, but, but, but I mean, and are we talking about counterculture? This thing, I don't think it's necessary. I think this is like actually the common thread. Like this is the common ideology espoused by most people now. It's not. Uh, it's not necessarily a, a, a departure. I don't know what we're countering in that in that context. And and the only question for me, and I don't know whether it, I don't know necessarily how I feel about it, but but really is this sense of agency where you say, look, centralized market capitalism is a hyper, hyper efficient thing, right? Over time, it will find ways. It doesn't care. It doesn't have an ideology. That's what's brilliant about it. It's parasitic in this way. It will change and mutate to its environment to satisfy the demands of its environment, and it will ultimately win, right? Where this gets really interesting in the context of China, that's adopted this kind of hybrid capitalistic model, um, is... You know, and many people have talked about this in the tech world, like the West will lose in a centralized uh, internet war, which is happening, by, by the way, right now. Like in the developing world, uh, the, the, the WeChat, WhatsApp wars are very real. There is very real territorial conflict happening right now to try and get the developing world to use either a Chinese app or a Facebook app, right? With the logic with that being is you have these developing economies, um, they haven't quite matured, It's all to play for. And as you say, these are people who don't necessarily have a background of uh, cultural institutions to refer to in terms of their own agency. They don't have a background of you know, deep kind of musical subcultures. They have a musical folk tradition perhaps. But, so there's a lot to play for. There's a lot of eyes. Now, the, 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 the attitude from uh, the Chinese government ultimately is that everything, because the Chinese government and, and Chinese corporations are basically one and the same thing, right? It's a centralized kind of... Uh, capitalist system, um, those eyes are going direct to Beijing, right? So they're looking to, to put in place the One Belt, One Road, for example, right now, where you have the, a new Silk Road. They're looking to take over vast territories of the earth to establish their dominion. This is, a, this is a new empire that's being established. And in that, you know, their understanding of individual agency is a very, very different tradition. It's a completely, completely different tradition. Um, And the individual human rights of people involved uh, are not necessarily at the forefront, right? It's not necessarily something at the forefront. The reason why they will beat the Western internet is that the Western internet has been very slow to develop, actually, um, for many myriad reasons. Like, the main reason really is that the West had to negotiate, the Western internet had to negotiate with incumbent institutions. So you can't just pay for everything on your phone because banks exist, right? When you, if you go to China and you hang out with WeChat, they didn't have to negotiate with anybody to push this forward. Centralized capitalism, very, very efficient system. Um, and so if you bring this down to music as being, if we can all maybe part of the reason we're here is that we put place some faith in music as being a kind of Petri dish or prototyping environment to think about how we want to be, right? Um, then that issue comes up of, 
are we complacently uh, uh, consuming something uh, to pass time because our 20s aren't what we were told our 20s would be? Um, and this is a, a, and we're also being told that this is a manifestation of our, our individuality and our, our political beliefs and all this kind of stuff. Or are we saying, wait a second, like what what kind of uh, protocol or structures do we want to put into place to establish a very very concrete set of, of demands um, that can allow for us to develop equity in the world and push that message? And you can still do that in parts of the world, but I don't see that necessarily being evoked much in these conversations that's not that's you know and generally speaking most people want to go out listen to techno hook up whatever go back to work get a promotion you know if they have a job you know it, 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 so there isn't really a a, a a conflict there to 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 reconcile i don't think you know I mean, you asked, you know, for example, want to try to inject counterculture, counterculture, you know, it's like, we're we, we people of ideology, you know, we're dreamers. Um, you will very agnostically said, you know, what will be countering, you know? So um, that would be maybe a question, you know, to you, you know, what if you would perceive yourself as somebody and I perceive your art as, you know, as countercultural um, in a very, you know, meta way sometimes. Um, but I don't want to ask a question about your values. I'm not gonna gonna do that. But in the example of China, you know, for example, um, since there is no plat, you know, there are no plat. You know, we get, we got in with boiler room. You know, we subverted. You know, we subverted. We we were the first um, company that managed to send out of the Great Firewall of China. You know, because I found a media company that had service in San Antonio that was half government owned, found you know, the loopholes within that company, how could basically send a bunch of Chinese kids celebrating music and values that are completely against what you know, the majority of uh, Chinese society accepts as decent and show that to the world and also to, at the first show, five and a half million Chinese viewers, you know, which gave a lot of those artists the first national exposure they have ever had because there's no SoundCloud because SoundCloud was forbidden because the Uyghur, what's the English word for the Uyghur minority is it Uyghur, Uyghur? because uh, the Uyghur minority was using you know SoundCloud for their kind of religious podcast so no SoundCloud for the Chinese audience you know and then in the end you know what ultimately you know what you counter is that and ultimately you know um, uh, you maintain an element of of, of, of subversion. I mean, in, Chi in, in, in China, it's particularly quite quite real because there is not much room to breathe for a lot of those kids. And I think that's a very compelling argument. Oh. I think that's that's a compelling argument for existence is saying that counterculture is actually something that happens elsewhere. Um, and I do think that that's to a degree true. So I, I, I support that. Yeah. You, go, you looked like you had something to say. <laughs> um, this discussion just reminded me of this book I read a few years ago. I think the title was uh, Rebel Cells. And it basically argued how rebellious, being a, a rebel or rebellious counterculture became the tool of marketing over the years. And I think the Ian, Ian Rogers is... Uh, a prime example because he comes from I think he was um, uh, I, I read his like interview a while ago and he, he was basically supporting Beastie Boys um, you know build their website uh, help them publish uh, Grand Royal um, you know he, he, he was like the, the very key individual in the emergence of Beastie Boys uh, whom at the time was seen as 
you know, subcul you know, subculture heroes. And they were skaters, they were, you know, rebellious, and everybody loved it, loved them. And over time, um, this skate culture, so brands like Vans or Converse, whatever, um, they started using, for example, it, on, the, on the cover of this book, they, it, it had uh, the portrait of Che Guevara. So having Che Guevara or Bob Marley became such a popular thing and everybody wanted to be rebellious and everybody want, wanted to be alternative. And I think it, you know, it relates to your argument of authenticity or how radical you can be because you know, being a fan of skater culture or being a techno raver is no longer anything alternative. Like everybody does that. And I think it's important to acknowledge that we live in the era that that being alternative is actually mainstream. Or in the absence of a clear-cut mainstream, it's unclear what it means to be alternative. Um, I guess I'm sort of interested in homing in on whatever flaws there might be in this current arrangement, because basically, the general consensus seems to be broadly quite positive. Um, I'm curious, do we think that, is anyone uh, unfairly left out in this situation? Or is are there voices that aren't being given the same platform as others? Or are there threats to you know, legitimate forms of art that there wouldn't have been in, in the previous paradigm? Um, Matt, you mentioned something earlier in passing that I didn't quite catch about collectivism, I think, or group group equity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, this, well, well, no, I mean, the hippies, like, created the internet as we know it, right? I mean, the, the, um, there's, there's, there's good books. <laughs> there's good books about, about how that particular ideology was vulnerable, um, was vulnerable to, to, to extreme capitalism. Um, yeah, I, I think my bigger point about this, I think, Market capitalism generally is primed for dominion. It's primed for monopoly. We've seen that with the web, right? Things when you allow people to beautiful little flowers to go out and express themselves, ultimately they coalesce into something that can be purchased by a bigger flower, right? That's kind of how market capitalism seems to have worked. Um, we talked to someone about Zalando earlier and this kind of greater dominion scenario, where there's this core tension between what you're sold as individualism as being, you know, the ability to branch out f for yourself. And then what you see over time is that, you know, rampant individualism leads to these clusters and monopolies. Um, and so, you know, if you were to connect this to greater, I'm, I'm on a political level, there's more stakes for me when it comes to the ownership of the internet than there is to club music, particularly. It's important to always establish that too, of like not conflating the two, like one is more grave than the other. Democracy is more grave than clubbing, right? Um, but you do see that market capitalism and, and democracy is also a little bit uh, uh, at odds right? Uh, and you can see this kind of more accelerated in the United States where they have more of a free market capitalist system. Um, and you see, you know, the more that you protect the interests of individuals or companies as, as individuals to express themselves, um, over time that starts to butt up against, you know, the freedom of information, uh, the, 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 the kind of the, the, the accuracy of information, the, uh, you know, the, the ability for people to vote with clear mind. Um, 
and so if you were to connect it to some kind of a political project, the thing that I'm particularly interested in is in equity. Um, and this doesn't necessarily have to be in a hippie way. Um, I just simply like the idea. I see resilient, very important institutions, take a Berghain, for example, um, and their model is really quite simple, which is we're going to own the space and we're going to determine what happens in it. And I think that I love the idea of there being 100 spaces, um, also for aesthetic reasons, um, that would make that step. Um, what I'm particularly... Because the aesthetic reasons is also, you know... Yuko said it earlier, but you know, if you look back to the golden era, the Halson days or whatever of, of independent music, there was a lot of money to come in to fund these little factions, right? So you had Warp 4AD, there's a million you can talk about. And using that cash, they got to, over time, like establish a fairly distinctive ideology, right? Um, they supported certain things over others, and over time that clustered into something that you would consider to be an, of, a, of aesthetic importance because you got to see an idea mature over time because it had the confidence of its convictions in the sense because it wasn't dependent on saying, oh yeah, I'll take that gig, I'll do this. You know, th There's something good about that. Um, and what I'm particularly interested in now, um, I've done some work in the kind of crypto uh, decentralized internet for a number of years now, um, is how much easier it is and there's still legal issues that need to be finangled. There's actually a bunch of work happening in Berlin uh, around this. How much easier it is to contemplate a scenario where a group of people who um, were all in cahoots over a particular ideology might be able to share equity over space, virtual physical space. Um, and that group of people, uh, the co-op system exists here and is actually fairly mature here. There's people I know here who know more about this than I do. Um, but I'm particularly interested in that being decentralized beyond location. Um, so this idea of saying people aren't willing to pay for music, I've kind of given up on that. I was never, honestly, I, I, I've been dragged into conversations because I know a lot about it. I don't care about selling music. That, that, that has never been something that I'm particularly like uh, fetishistic of. Um, but I do care about supporting resilient organizations. And I do wonder if with new frameworks in place to, um, to distribute equity and give people a different logic by which they can participate and support culture. Um, I do wonder what could be done to create a few resilient organizations that might, you know, playfully, playfully antagonize um, the dominion of the RBMAs and, and the boiler rooms. And as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm on, um, you know, I'm actually far less uh, 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 angry about that than than many people, um, because I don't see there being an inconsistency there, and I think they do about as good a job as they could do in those circumstances. I think you know they do enforce um, and make sure a line isn't crossed. They do support weirdos that wouldn't be supported otherwise. Um, and so, but in the spirit of of agency, of this idea of saying no, I actually quite like the idea of coming up with something with a group of people and having control over it and making it uh, weather resistant. Um, I think there's more that could be done. Yep. Um, I wanted to make a comment about your question. Uh, I've been thinking about it. Uh, what, what the danger could be in the current arrangement or the landscape of things. Um, and um, this is something I've been feeling working as a booking agent recently. And related to what I've said, um, you know, everyone wants to be alternative. Everyone wants to find their own niche. And because of that, I think a lot of the platforms or the curators uh, tend to jump on something new and maybe something extreme. 
And as a result of that, I see a lot of artists, you know, get like instant hype for maybe a year and then just completely forgotten the next year. And I feel, I, I feel like it's possible that this climate of um, corporate sponsorship is accelerating this uh, trend or um, change, changing of the trend much faster than it has been so that um, a lot of the artists who are, you know, who have probably been around for a long time and get this instant hype and then completely forgotten and it's very difficult for them to come back. And yeah, I, I, I know a lot of artists like that and I don't know how we could help them in the current. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's about sharing knowledge. This is, for example, as I referred to the, the, the Berlin Music Commission panel that we've had that was actually a more hands-on panel with artists providing strategies how to get involved how to protect and uh, um, basically understand your own interests and how to engage you know it's 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 a learning process because ultimately you know there's a lot to be discussed about you know possible futures but the the, the moment you know it is the reality that there's very few revenue streams for a lot of artists. They have to find new revenue streams, but a lot of artists are not very knowledgeable about how to how to play that. So actually, it would be the role of those knowledgeable to 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 you know there's there's uh, this no 2018 type of guidebook of how to work with brands if you are a musician, you know. There's nobody has written such a thing. We discussed, you know, a knowledge database, but unfortunately, you know, we couldn't find the funding for it. But this is actually this is a reality that um, there are strategies. It is a reality. You can provide artists, you know, with, with knowledge, know-how and strategies, how to protect themselves. Utilize it for growth so you don't burn out. By the way, there's also, I can tell you, I get a lot of, you know, I get a lot of, agencies and brands pitching me, asking me, and I can tell you the moment a Fact Magazine, ma uh, fact magazine uh, set goes up, within the next two weeks I will get, you know, a request. And strangely enough, this really, before then, obscure artists of all of a sudden front, left and center for a really basic marketing agency. Like, yeah, this is a, somebody's reader, really cool. We really want them. It's like, yeah, because your intern, you know, listens to Fact Magazine, and this is how you get your know-how. Um, and this creates very unhealthy dynamics, which you said. And we can actually do a lot to protect the, the music community against it if we kind of share that knowledge. Unfortunately, this doesn't happen too often. No, yeah. Not at all, really. And I think, I think Yuka raises a really good point, and I feel for this, because I, I, I say this, I mean, Holly and I say this sometimes, I feel like, you know, having like Mission Impossible or something, there's a door closing, and you like slide under the door just at the end. I think, I feel like when we caught a bit of a break with the music, we just literally slid under that door. One big concern, I have two big concerns about this kind of turnover. One big concern is it basically turns into a monarchy. If you were famous in the 90s, you'll be the most famous person until you decide to quit, right? Because you have this long tail effect of like, here comes everybody, whatever, right? The, the second part is, there's a, again a core conflict and a contradiction where on, on the one hand we talk about individualism, everyone has an Instagram account, you're, you're out there to define yourself from everybody else who happens to have Ableton, right? Let's be real, right? I mean, I mean, because like, 
and there's crazy interesting subcultures within EDM, like whole other like bass music communities of you know, of really weird interesting things happening around the creation of music that the 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 virtue is not at all to distinguish yourself. The virtue is to meet an arbitrary level that can help you access something else, right? So sharing production packs, sharing production tools. There's something quite beautiful about it and like non-proprietary. But on the other side, there's this there's this odd kind of shift of emphasis um, from you know doing something that 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 perhaps is not common um, to having a clear guideline. Um, ambiently kind of derived from just participating in culture of exactly what you need to do to get here and there, right? And so I see a weird conflict where, you know, and, and perhaps now I'm old. I mean, perhaps this is like a, an antiquated way of looking at things, but I see the most professional 18-year-olds, period, right? Like, who, having grown up in this and with, and I teach a lot of them, actually, uh, super smart, super switched on, not stupid people in the slightest, very aware. I know what to wear, I know who to talk to, I know where to turn up. I mean, and again, maybe I was an idiot, but I certainly wasn't like that at that period of time. And I'm fucking grateful for it. Because in that, the peculiarities that led to things that I think are particularly interesting about the work that we do um, were incubated in that environment of people not being like, hey, you're cool. Like, right? Um, similarly, you see a, a trend of people, and I say this with DJing because I give DJs hell. I mean, there's good DJs, whatever, but like, this idea of immediately zeroing in on that being the path, right? Where the music itself is now pretty much, and this is, this is economically derived, this is the way the economics of music industry went, the music itself lost value, the value is you turning up, it's your specialness, if you're a bit taller than the next person, you'll win, right? Um, of immediately, of kind of creating music simply as a, as a means of accessing opportunities um, that have all kind of other benefits. And I think that in that you lose a bit of a thread of you know the value of music as ultimately kind of the genesis of our culture and language, um, the idea of music as an evolutionary tool, the idea of music changing and, and challenging things, you lose a little bit of that because in a, in a sense that, that there's a lot and, and and again it comes back down to this idea of the avant-garde, of this being this kind of fixed thing, is a fixed sequence of things that you can do in order to qualify yourself as an artist of note, right? Um, and I do worry about that. I don't worry about them because most of these people are super switched on, very savvy, know exactly what they're doing. Um, but I worry more about the, you know, the, the, the cultural or aesthetic fallout of that. You know, are we just like permanently in this kind of zombified 90s state you know, in which the radical artists sound like Ortecker or Aphex Twin and you know, the, 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 the ones that make connections with people make house music and the, you know, the, these forms just become very, very codified and solidified also by the monarchy of, of these characters who you know, are basically going to be headlining festivals till the day they die um, because the long tail of the internet led to a scenario in which nobody else can sell as many tickets as them. So even the whole festival structure, most of the things we understand to be to, to constitute the music industry as we know it is wholly dependent on this kind of, you know, there being someone at the top. Um, and, and yeah, anyway, so, that, so there's all these kind of issues. And not, and, and not to also forget about this, but, but we live in a culture of very, very depressed people who don't feel necessarily uh, like they do have a sense of purchase on their future. And I think those th two things are coupled. Um, not to say that anyone has kind of uh, malevolent intentions, but you know, if you have a source of money and there's a kid out there who's talented who wants to access that money, they might communicate that they're happier with circumstances than they actually are. You know, so that's another kind of meta responsibility of everybody being like, are we providing opportunities for them to do what they want, or are we providing opportunities for them to do what we think they want? 
you know? And that's where the avant-garde line stands. Yeah, to pick up on this avant-garde thing, you mentioned a few times the idea of the avant-garde as a fixed thing that at this point uh, that term could describe legacy acts like Autecker or something. Um, someone mentioned something about if a shoe brand is interested in what you're doing, how radical is it really? Is there a musical movement that is genuinely avant-garde in the sense that it's too new, too hard to understand to fit into this world? Is that possible? Or if there was, you know, the next iteration of Young Autecker, would Ray-Ban be happy to throw them, you know, on Boiler Room? Or would you guys, would Ray-Ban be happy to have their logo in the background on Boiler Room? Or basically my question is, is anything too, too advanced too new, too weird for um, brands today? I think that has less to do with the brands, but you said, you know, of the sequence of things that one has to go through to become an accomplished um, artist. This is basically, you know, what you decide, I can I say, um, so what basically, you know, you can actually create art, you can create culture and keep the brands out if what you expect from creating art is 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 not connected to money. Look at, for example, at the free techno scene in France. It's festivals, there's like sound systems, like 10,000 people, there's people writing music, you know, everything wonderful. There's no brands, there's no money, nothing. Everybody's still happy nonetheless because, you know, they have decided that this is the way they want to live, create culture, and they create, you know, their environment and also their life according to that because this is how culture creation is, is, is perceived, or like Psytrance, you know, was the other day I was at uh, the first time in years again at a big Psytrance event, you know, and just the way this scene is structured, not like the commercial tail end, you know, like infected mushrooms, we're talking about like, what do they call it uh, now, um, high tech, high tech is the new thing in Psytrance, it's very wonderful, it's very radical, it's, you know, completely not accessible, I think, to brands, but also because the people don't really perceive the community and what they live and what how they create music and what they create this music for is um, applicable or com com compliant or compatible with that, you know. So we're discussing actually something where everybody has decided, well, I need to make music as a DJ, as an I need to make money with this, you know, I need to, you know, tick those boxes, you know, I need to be on this platform, I need to play this festival. It's a choice, you know, we're discussing a system that we've opted into knowingly and now we have to find a way how to deal with it, you know. You could as well opt out um, and there's plenty examples of musicians who created magnificent works, pieces of work, would have never spoken to anyone about it, you know, but they were very happy and content with the fact that they created the music because it happened on the terms they agreed with themselves on creating this music or this art or the literature or so, so forth and so on. So um, it's literally what is the sequence of things that you, you know, agreed for yourself on. We're discussing at the moment a very particular sequence of things, which is market capitalism and how do we survive within that. We could also, and, and I think, you know, about Bank is a space that tries to navigate that in a very unique way, you know, how you can actually try to survive outside of that, you know, in an utopian type of type of way. But we should also not glorify, you know, the virtue of the artist. You know, oh my God, they're struggling, you know, there's a day. Many, at least, you know, in Central Europe have decided to live a certain way with certain goals. There's a lot of opportunity to live 
in a different way, you know. And for example, look at how a lot of art was created in the Soviet Union. You know, you worked in a, as an engineer in like a missile factory from Monday 8 a.m. to Friday, you know, 10 p.m. And then on the weekend you wrote songs, you know, and this was the reality, you know, there was no money in it. It was just, you know, whatever you did with your free time. So we should also not over glorify a few things that we talk about right now, because ultimately they, this decisions that are made consciously. I made the conscious decision, you know, to play this game because I want to create a platform that that creates visibility for people who don't have a platform yet. But nonetheless, I have to play that game in the rules that that are set laid out of me, you know, and also accept, you know, the 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 the, the, the um, consequences of that. But I don't really have to, you know. I could also run stream out of my, my living room that nobody fucking cares about, but at least my friends that I like play it, and then that's, that's you know, the goal that I set myself. So you sh we should not over -glor glorify a lot of those processes. That's what I'm trying to say. And go to more Psytrance parties, as I found <laughs> out uh, two weeks ago. I guess my, th what I'm wondering is, if you take hip-hop in the 80s, there was a period of time when hip-hop um, had fans, had essential artists, was popular. But um, the mainstream, as it was then, wasn't ready for it. It was too threatening to the audience of MTV, too threatening for brands to get on board with. Would that happen now if there was some modern iteration of hip-hop? Um, would there be a quicker learning curve? You know, would, would anyone feel, would, would people still think like, ooh, that's too dicey? Or is the difference that today they would have gotten behind it straight away just because they could sense that it was vital? There's, you know, there's, um, I know that you will may say a thing that is a thousand times smarter than me, but the way I love Matt, like whenever I talk to you, I can th a month worth of thoughts come out of that. Um, you know, somebody who I really, really admire and I think that shows how strong and how powerful we actually, you know, positions of, not, not counterculture is not the right word, but you know, how strong one can build um, a platform of agencies. Monroe Bergdorf, for example, the way she, you know, got into, you know, because as a black trans woman, you know, she got into into a very commercial space, but how she, you know, took an incredibly, incredibly hard, radical, and very, very sincere position about, you know, what her interests are, what the interests of her community are, how she stands in for that, and how she made brands long for that, you know, to be part of that conversation, to amplify that, you know, to adhere to her terms, um, changed for many people their situation for the better, you know? It's like, she is, for example, an example of somebody who I tremendously respect, how she basically alone managed to change the whole conversation around, 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 I think, uh, the rights of trans women, their visibility, and you know, also their voice, you know, and she did it playing that particular game, but nonetheless also creating in a very smart way, just like the kids that you said, you know, knowing how, you know, how this, this works, how this media landscape works, but still had, you know, her interests and um, uh, in her mind and protected them, you know, and utilized the But in a way that's that kind of what I'm identifying where, with her as L'Oreal is like, yeah, we can get on board with this. And then she said basically that all white people are complicit in racism. And they're like, whoa, that was way more than we bargained for. Never mind. So to me, that sort of is, but yeah, maybe but it's different now. We're looking at the fallout from that, you know, yeah, sure. what's happened where she's now, you know, where she's present, the yeah. kind of fashion and, and also um, 
not only fashion icon, she became also advertising persona, but also a political activist, you know, because there was a brand that was like, didn't understand what they, what they didn't understand what they were, you know, getting into because they saw only on the surface, you know, oh yeah, that is, that is, that's like what people like right now, right? Diversity, you know, let's throw also a female DJ collective into that and then we're fine, right? Um, no, but that's not how it fucking works and people are luckily much smarter than that. And now, the conversation has changed, you know, there's way more awareness for that. There's, uh, th th the world became a slightly a better place because of that. So. To, to answer your question, do I think there's things that, that people aren't touching? Yes, I mean, I think, um, I mean, one awful uh, way in which this has gone, in a sense, is, you know, the, the, the rise of, uh, the rise of online fascism uh, spawned from 4chan. I mean, that is one of the defining subcultures of our time. Let's not be, like, Let's not be. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, but I mean, but it, wait but until it, the brands get on that. Yeah, but it, 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 I mean, it meets it meets all of the criteria, and that is something that that, I mean, I'm sure there are people trying desperately to uh, capitalize on that, but that's a real. Um, but then, on more positive ends, using similar tools, the the point is, is that people that people who feel disenfranchised in some way, particularly young people, will find ways, right? That people are very pragmatic; they will find ways. Again, the reason why I keep coming back to I'm a I'm a lefty materialist, like for my sins, um, I keep coming back to the politic of space. Right, the, the the scenario you have now is that you have many many people you know developing what could be understood to be ideologically driven, utopian or dystopian in that particular circumstance uh, communities online. Um, the challenge is, is that's the only space that they're that, that they have dominion over. Right, online space is virtually infinite, um, and so. You, <laughs> Part of the, the, the reason I like the idea of emphasizing congregation and being in a room with somebody is that then you actually have equity in the world. Then people actually give a shit, right? Then you actually have a say. If you sit on a piece of land, sad to say it, this is the world we live in, then you have a, you know, a horse in the race. Um, if you don't, you're kind of a surf, uh, a surf within, uh, within this new economy. Um, and so I'm particularly interested in, in this idea of saying, well, you know, what would it look like to see um, spaces that were manifesting the, the different potentials of, uh, of, of interactions or the different kind of reward mechanisms or incentive mechanisms or different forms of creativity that are being explored online, but you actually own a space and you can see them manifest in the way in which people go out, right? And so, for example, you know, myself and, and a group of people like, were jokingly talking about crypto raves. Um, uh, yeah, which, which was, like, was kind of like a dinner table conversation that turned into a real thing. Um, but the whole idea there, you know, the, the initial the initial kind of uh, manifestations of that were super easy. You're just like, okay, like let's have a party and let's have people mine their tickets, and then the more work they do, the more tickets they get, and it's all totally anonymous. And then you turn up and you assume a character, and so you know the whole idea is to keep it somewhat cryptographic, and so nobody, you know, you aren't exposing your identity in in, the, in those environments. That was like one like super cute, easy way to do it. But the, where it gets really, really interesting is the idea of, again, on protocols, the, this idea of saying, how would, you, how, would you, how would you imbue a ideological system into the structure of how we go out? What is the user experience, so to say, of, of clubbing, right? Or what, like, how are, because people pretty much congregate in exactly the same way as they did for, for a really long time, right? And like, now you have bigger screens and there's kind of like, graphics in the background, but generally speaking, it kind of looks the same. And so the idea of kind of manifesting uh, a different way of interacting with one another, a different way to exchange value, and a way to also encode aesthetics into the way in which places work and the way in which things work feels like a new frontier for me. Um, 
and and I think part of that can also be spawned from the fact. I mean, this is this is Holly's point, but but something we thought about a lot around platform era was you know there's also kind of like a, a poverty of the gesture, right? Like like we're we're we we've got to a point where it, we we discovered lo and behold, loads of people are talented, right? Like people just didn't have the tools or the time in the past to share that, but loads of people can make decent music or take a decent picture, particularly if you democratize those tools, right? So you kind of have this like. There's kind of like a, a, a an abundance of stuff um, that has the sad this the, this kind of the the, the sad uh, um, the sad kind of counter uh, effect of it just becoming kind of bland. You know, you're like oh, everyone can make decent trap music now. It's kind of a folk music of its time. Techno is kind of a folk music of its time. Everyone can make it, but do we value any one of these people any more than the next person to support them for a career of experimentation? Probably not, because why would you know? We, I got a hundred decent techno mixes today and fucking perennial mixes um but so in in that circumstance like the, the point being like the gesture for a particular period of time of like rampant individualism and subcultures was i'm gonna go and be like hendrix like mutating the american national anthem in protest to this thing and the, all the press is going to be looking at woodstock or whatever festival it was because there was a centralized music industry and there was there was a kind of a centralized dominion over people's attention and so that that gesture went really, really far and resonated really, really far. And now we're in a weird scenario where it's kind of like, you know, that tradition, what would, what would the contemporary equivalent of that be? Um, and Holly's argument, which I think is fairly sound, is, you know, we live in a time now where, you know, you could make tracks on your computer, by all means, if it's therapeutic or if you get pleasure from it and if other people get pleasure for it, absolutely. But if you have genuinely transgressive aspirations with this, you can also do lots of other stuff with that machine. And in fact, you know, the, 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 material, the, the material impact of people navigating and mastering a laptop, particularly a laptop connected to all the computers in the world, in order to manifest a particular vision, whether it be a good one or a bad one, kind of has a more, a more powerful recent track record than the idea of someone making a protest song, right? Um, and so, you know, a protest song, there was a period of time in which that had this kind of great potential by a very select group of people, handpicked by a very, very uh, 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 kind of central authority. Um, and now you have a bit of a crisis of, of uh, a bit of a crisis of narrative um, because we still talk about these things when, when ultimately really the, 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 you know, in terms of like social, uh, social issues or, you know, things that, things that actually do cause a huge fuss you know, my like order of operations pretty much is like the hacker community is almost always at the top. Like whatever they're dealing with in five years' time, everyone else will be talking about. You just have to kind of sneak it out. The gaming community, which is the ascendant moneyed industry, right? The gaming, like the game industry, weathered the financial crisis. Um, there's a lot of money and tension, so you have things like Gamergate and all these kind of issues that were, were forebears for other greater issues that have, hap that have happened through culture. And music finds itself, you know, once being this kind of source where, you know, people at the dinner table would talk about the record and the gesture that Janet Jackson made and, you know, this kind of stuff, almost relegated now to, uh, to, to, to a less kind of powerful political um, Device, but I don't think that necessarily need be the case because the one thing that music has really going for it, and why I keep coming back to it, is congregation, um, and that as a political actor, as a as a, as a space of, of potential, um, has the jump on all these other atomized kind of fields like gaming or or, or whatever. So that's that's I'll leave it there because I want. To. I, I was to, to answer your original question. I I think I I can't really imagine anything that 
can escape the reach of brands, how how new or revolutionary their 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 uh, expression is, um, because as long as it's considered cool, that there's a value to it, and this is what the the, the brands uh, want to benefit from. I was also going to say the only exception I can think of is uh, when when something is. <coughs> Uh, obviously politically incorrect that's uh, what um, you know any any uh, companies corporations want to distance themselves from and I, I think we've seen the you know example of uh, Red Bull for example and I was thinking of uh, Radar Radio with the scandal um, how it you could you could see that uh, a brand no matter how big it seems is actually quite fragile to this kind of scandal. And if you associate yourself with one brand or two brands too much, then if the brand goes down, this could also bring you down uh, as, as your artist image because of the affili aff affiliation. And maybe that's something that artists need to be a little bit conscious about when they you know, associate themselves with brands.